This is Living Lean, the show that teaches you how to apply the science of nutrition and training to sustainably create your leanest, strongest body and build the most confident version of yourself. I'm your host, Jeremiah Bear. Let's get into the show. All right, what is going on? Welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by Ryan Solomon. Ryan, thank you for being here, dude. Thanks for having me, man. Of course, dude. So for the listeners that don't know, just give us a little bit of a background on yourself. Yeah, you bet. So I guess about a decade ago now, I started lifting for football and sports and stuff in high school. And right off the bat, I freaking hated it. It was the worst <laughs> thing ever. I I just, every time the coach walked out, I would sit down on the bench, talk to my friends and just bullshit for the entire time <laughs> instead of actually doing anything. But I started taking it a little bit more seriously in high school, started seeing results. And then I just kind of fell in love with it and realized that when I got my kind of my, my crap together with lifting, it changed every other kind of area of my life and everything in my life got better. My studies, how I treated people, everything. and that's kind of where the idea caught in my head of, hey man, this this lifting thing can kind of be a a spark or a catalyst to every other area in your life. And it'd be pretty sweet if I could be some sort of coach or trainer and help other people do that. So fast forward a little bit, I went to school for exercise science and got my master's degree in exercise science. And I started coaching with Revive Stronger about a year and a half ago. And that's kind of what I've been doing and have been kind of helping people with that process and having lifting kind of be that catalyst to improving other areas of their life. I love it, dude. And that's very much what I tell clients also. Like it's not, it's not like lifting is training is a thing, but it's not really the thing, right? Like Mm -hmm. being jacked, getting super lean that's never going to be the thing that actually makes you super happy but the carryover it has Mm -hmm. to like like i'm sure you've seen when you have a client that goes through a crazy transformation it literally changes every facet of their lives yep absolutely i think you know i think a lot of people start in this thing because you know they want to look good and you know that's that's the same way it was for me i wanted to be look good and i wanted to be stronger than my friends it's kind of (laughs) how i got into it and You know, I think a lot of my clients start there as well, but when they go through some sort of transformation, whether it's physical, they improve their strength, some sort of things like you pick up habits, you pick up things with your lifestyle along the way that kind of improves every other area. And, you know, I'm at the point now to where like, even if my physique or my strength doesn't improve a ton over the next decade it's not going to take me out of the gym or anything like that. Cause I know the benefits that it has. And you know, if clients can see that, then they're going to be lifelong gym goers. And it's kind of what we're going for here. hundred percent. I love it, man. I love it. So for you, when did the transition to like, uh, this is something I enjoy doing to, I actually want to become a coach. When did that come about? So that was pretty early, man. I would say that even kind of later on in high school, like I said, once I started really loving lifting and that sort of thing, I was like, hey man, it, it would be pretty sweet to make this kind of my career. And hey. I I remember early on in college, I just, 
I, so I worked at a physical therapy clinic and one of the physical therapists, he would listen to these things called podcasts. And I was like, <laughs> what in the heck is this? And he always listened to these sports ones. So, you know, I was on those, my little podcast machine or my phone, I guess. And he, uh, or I just searched bodybuilding podcast. And the first two that come up were Jeff Nippard's ice cream for PRs. Yes. It was his, his old school podcast. And then the Barbell One Show, which was an, another old one. And that was like my intro. And some of the first podcasts I listened to was like Jeff Nippard's Roundtables with like Metal Henselvids and Dude, all these so guys. Good. Yeah, I had such a nice like kind of intro to the podcast world. And then I came across this other kind of podcast with this British guy, you know, Steve Hall. And I was like, man, <laughs> he had this other huge guy, Mike Israel on a lot. And he he seemed like he knew what he was talking about. So I was like, you know, if if I want this to kind of be my career someday, I wonder if I could kind of learn from some of these guys that are podcasting and doing this online coaching thing. That seems like a pretty sweet gig. So I ended up reaching out to Steve and I was like, hey man, I love what you're doing with the podcast. Is there anything that I can do to kind of help you out or provide value to you? And my goal is just to kind of learn from him and maybe kind of see the path of becoming an online coach. And after talking with Steve, he was like, yeah, you can help out with the Facebook group. And it just kind of built that relationship from there. And about a year and a half or two years after helping Steve just with some free stuff and that sort of thing, he's like, Hey, you want to come on as a coach? And I was like, hell yeah. And it's kind of how it evolved. I love it, man. And that's such a good point too. Like I always tell coaches that want to figure out how to, or people that want to become like online coach and learn how to do it well. The best thing you can do is just like you did there, right? Like either hire, hire a coach you really look up to or like figure out a way to give them value. Like, like I did the same thing with, I don't know if you've heard of mind pump, but for the longest time it was just every week mm-hmm. I was writing them three blogs a week, just busting out tons and tons of blogs. And like in exchange for that, I got to learn so much from them, but that's dope, man. I really resonate with, I resonate with your story quite a bit too. Actually, I'd never, I'd never really heard your backstory. I've heard you on a couple of podcasts and of course, like, you know, the team revived stronger. Well, but, um, Mm -hmm. for me, like just getting into the same thing, it was like football was, that was why I started lifting and same thing. I hated it. Like (laughs) coach was always yelling at me because my squat sucked and I was like, yeah, but then for us, um, I remember for me in high school as well, the first time I took pre-workout, <laughs> I just went and lifted for like three hours. And that mm. I was like, dude, this is crazy. And that and that day was I just decided, okay, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a coach, I'm gonna be a personal trainer. And since then it was like, which is such a weird <laughs> way into it, but I was yeah. like, dude, I, I took pre-workout. I was like, I love working out. It just Yeah, man. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> man. Um No, that that's awesome, dude. I I, I definitely in high school, I, I know when I caught the bug, I totally went over the top with it. And I was doing like, in high school even, I was doing like AM and PM sessions before oh, school and after school. And my rule was that I would stay in the in the gym until the wrestlers got done with their practice. So from like three to five after school and then before school. So yeah, I definitely caught the bug just like you. <laughs> so you, it sounds like you were pretty intelligent about your training right from the start then. Um, outside of just going a little bit too hard 
I would say I, I definitely did much more than I had to, but I would say my nutrition or my training has always been solid. And the main thing that I didn't grasp right away was the nutrition aspect of things. Like right. in high school, I would just look up bodybuilder diet and I would just copy <laughs> it verbatim template diets it. off theater to add, you know, at, at the start it, it worked pretty well because I was just eating clean, quote unquote, and right. eating a lot less total calories, of course, is what I was really doing. And it worked for losing weight and stuff. And it just kind of evolved from there. Okay. So when you started training, were you trying to build muscle or were you trying to get leaner or what? Definitely get leaner. So I was like 220 or 230 and ended up cutting like 60 or 70 pounds my first Damn. couple of years. And I would say that was my, so I definitely kind of needed to do that to get in a healthy, healthy body fat range. But throughout those first few years, I definitely didn't spend enough time going through gaining phases, eating enough food. And I would say my training was fairly solid from the start, but it was definitely that nutrition aspect of not giving myself enough food to kind of permit some of that growth and building some of that muscle okay okay interesting interesting all right dude so anyways the biggest reason i wanted to have you on here is really to talk through optimizing nutrition and training for hypertrophy but also like we mentioned i want to get a little bit in this idea of body fat settling point because this is something that i heard you and steve talking about this is something i've talked about on the podcast quite a bit and it's always been super interesting to me so you don't mind, could you just define for us like, or how do you define like a body fat settling point? Yep, absolutely, man. I think the the most simplest version of it is just a a body fat range or a body weight range to where someone kind of feels good, they feel healthy. You know, if if you go, if you get kind of quote unquote too lean, you might experience symptoms of maybe poor sleep, maybe you are irritable all the time, maybe you're thinking about food all the time. One big one that if you're really dieted down that you might start to notice is bowl guarding. So this is when you have like your food and you don't want anybody to come around you. You want to be <laughs> alone in your room. And man, I remember like back in the day when I would diet down hard, I would save off all my calories for like ice cream at the end of the day, which is a total problem in of itself. But I remember like I'd be eating, uh, eating my ice cream and someone would walk in the room and I would, I would like stop eating because I didn't want to be inter interrupted or anything. So <laughs> body fat settling point, just kind of the idea that you have a body fat range to where you feel good, you feel healthy, you perform well, you can build muscle and all that sort of thing. Okay. Okay. So for many people, I'm sure you found this with clients, often your body fat settling point is going to be a lot higher than you want it to be, right? <laughs> yeah. What can we do? What have you found that you can do? Or like, what do you think are the factors we can manipulate to change this? Yeah, man. So that's a very challenging question. So the idea of can you change your body fat settling right. point at all? Like that's that's <laughs> tough because... On one hand, when you when you diet down and you get to a level of leanness, we kind of want to increase our calories so we're eating more food. But then it's like, is that enough? Is eating more food enough to have us feeling better, have us be healthier and that sort of thing? Or do we actually have to regain some body fat to feel good? And 
I would say it, it definitely depends on the extent of how lean you get. Like if you don't get like maybe for a guy much below like 10% body fat and to maybe a level of, to where you're noticing a lot of these symptoms of food focus, lack of sleep, stuff like that. If you don't get that lean, then maybe you can just kind of reverse diet your calories up a little bit and start feeling a little bit better and be fine. But there probably is a, a level of leanness that people get to, to where it's so far below kind of their body fat settling range to no matter what they do with working their calories up and doing those different strategies, they might have to regain some of that body fat back before they start feeling good again. As body fat is kind of one big kind of endocrine organ. So it secretes different hormones and stuff like that. So one of the big ones is leptin. It's kind of our hunger hormone. It regulates a lot of things. I actually, so coming out of this podcast, I like to listen to a few of the episodes kind of beforehand to see what I'm getting myself into. And I listened to your episode with Eric Trexler. And okay. I think that he talked about leptin and stuff yes, like sir. that. So we'll talk about it quite a bit. Yeah, if you guys are listening to this, go listen to him. He's much smarter than me. He knows what he's talking about very much. So that so. dude is so smart. Yeah, it's it's crazy. He's on another level. You know, him, oh, yeah. and, him and Greg Knuckles for his podcast. Like it, it's ridiculous. But basically, leptin will control a variety of things in our body, and one of the main things that produces leptin is our body fat. So there's kind of this idea that if you don't return your body fat to some level of normalcy, you'll, you won't return other kind of hormonal levels. And if you don't return those hormonal levels, you might be kind of suppressing yourself if you're below that body fat and you might not be able to put yourself in a good position to build muscle, to generally feel good, satiated throughout the day. So I would say a long answer to your question, but it's hard to say whether we can influence that settling point a whole bunch. I would say the the way to go about it that makes the most sense to me is, hey, if if you diet down and you get to a point to where, you know, maybe you're a little bit more hungry, but you're not noticing a ton of symptoms of food focus, lack of sleep, irritable throughout the day, all those things, then you very well could be good to just work your calories back up and not put on a ton of body fat to feel good. But if you do work your calories up a bit and you're noticing pretty strong symptoms of food focus, irritability, lack of sleep, you aren't performing well in the gym, you're not recovering well, then it might come to a point to where, hey, we might have to move that body fat up a little bit until we start feeling a little bit better. Right. Okay. Okay. I love it, man. And that's typically what I, I think the most common place where I run into this with clients is, and just anecdotally, I see this more often with women than men. And it might just be because I work with more women than men, but Mm -hmm. we get lean to the point where, so say a client starts, they have like, let's say it's a woman that's like 30% body fat. We get lean, we get leaner, leaner, leaner. And then we get to the point where we're really kind of digging, right? We get past the point where we can comfortably sit here. And then it's actually like, it's a push to try to get leaner. But also we know like long-term you can't sustain this. And typically what I tell women in this situation is like, all right, so we have kind of hit like this settling point where we know it's going to be a grind to get leaner than this. And realistically Mm -hmm. for your health, you're not going to be able to maintain this long-term. So typically I think in situations like that, 
the solution is actually taking some time to eat more and focusing on building lean muscle. And then when we go through like another cut in the future, then you'll likely like how your physique looks better. Because I mean, even if you don't, even if we are at, let's say like that, the settling point, the bottom range of that is you have 20 pounds of fat on your body and you have 110 pounds of lean mass. If we increase that to like 115 pounds of lean mass, we never drop below that 20 pounds of body fat on your body. Still, your overall body fat percentage is going to be leaner. That's mm-hmm. typically like how I explain it to people like the best way that we can manipulate it. Do you have any thoughts on that? I 100% agree, man. I think that one of the, the biggest cures to when people don't, they don't quite feel healthy. They don't quite feel normal. It's not a sustainable body fat to where they get down to. One of the biggest cures to that is building more muscle right. because the more muscle mass you have, the better that body, that body fat is going to look like so, uh, a kind of exaggerated example, but I think it kind of proves a point is if you look at like defense alignment in the NFL and yes, they're genetic freaks. I understand they're, it's not one-on-one comparison to the average trainee, but a lot of these guys, they're not, they're like 15, 20% body fat. And since they have so much muscle, like it still looks pretty dang good. So I, I absolutely think that, Hey, sometimes it's just having that, that conversation with clients, you know, like, Hey, you know, this body fat might not be sustainable right now, but if we give it time and if we're able to work your calories up, go through gaining phases, build some muscle, then over time, the body fat that you have at kind of that lower end of your settling range is going to look better and better because of that muscle that you have. Right. Oh, hundred percent. And I think for the majority of people that can't get as lean that they want as they want with like following a diet, just for most people in general, I think more time in building phases is the answer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> totally agree, man. So and I think one other aspect of this as well is like for people that seem like, like, okay, I get lean and then my body fat always rebounds or like, I always like kind of have this number that's a lot higher than I want that I'm drawn to. And it's not at that point where we're just like pushing they just always tend to like gain back the weight. I think in that case, it's a lot, a lot more of like an environmental aspect than anything else. Like all these different environmental factors. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the behavioral side of it is definitely an aspect as well, for sure. Like we have the the physiological side of, hey, you know, eating more food and maybe working your body fat up at some point might be a good idea to feel normal again. But we also definitely have that behavioral aspect of, you know, if if your family is eats eats more normal, which you know, it's it's kind of a shame that w- what's normal is like so off base of what is potentially healthy and that sort of thing. Right. You know, I. I rate on this every once in a while, but (laughs) one thing that bothers me so much is fit shaming. So this is the idea of when someone's like, they're eating healthy, they're working out and they're doing that sort of thing to where other people will always like shame them. And it's like, oh, you're so healthy. And they say it in like just a kind of a condescending way to minimize you. And it's like the most annoying thing to me ever, but it's just kind of is what it is. So yes, that environmental, that that kind of social pressure, that peer pressure from other people can definitely make things more challenging. And with clients that are kind of running into that, I I typically suggest to them the first thing is just kind of having an open, honest communication with 
your friends, your family that you think are potentially maybe bringing you down a little bit, just kind of being open with them. Like, Hey, you know, I'm, this is important to me. This is my goal. And this is something that makes me feel really good to do. And I would really appreciate it if you supported that. And, you know, if they continue to shame you about that sort of thing and all that stuff, you know, then maybe it's kind of time to spend a little bit less time with those people and have some new people in your life, you know? So, right. No. And honestly, the most common scenario where I see this, like until that conversation is had is from the significant other. Right. Mm-hmm. At least in, unless it's like a, if you are running, if you're working with like a younger client, often it'll be like, just like your peers. So like, college buddies are giving you shit because you don't want to drink as much or like yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we both experienced but mm-hmm. um then often like the significant other one is honestly a very hard one because I feel like a lot of times that's and it does often just come down to having that crucial conversation like you said and with most of my clients like when it says okay like this is just a conversation that needs to ha- be had because I feel like a lot of resentment can build there too where it's like oh, I yeah. really feel like they're sabotaging me and they just don't get it they just don't listen to me and I like most of the time the solution there is just like you have to like put it all on the table. You just have to have this honest conversation or it's just going to keep happening. Resentment's going to keep mm-hmm. building. But yep, I, I totally agree. I think that in general, like once we move out of high school and once we move out of college, like the the people that have the most influence on our lives are probably like our significant other because it's, you know, once we're out of college, we're not surrounded by our peers as much and that sort of thing. So I definitely think that it often is that significant other. And, you know, like you said, having that, putting, putting all the chips on the table and being like, Hey, you know, this is important to me trying to communicate with that with them. And, you know, if they, they still don't accept that, you know, a lot of it is them kind of putting some of their own insecurities on you. And, you know, they kind of know it themselves personally that they might want to be making some of those changes and stuff like that. So if you can find a way to, Hey, bring them along with you along the journey and you both kind of grow together. I think that can be great. But if, like you said, it turns into that resentment and they, you have that open, honest communication with them and they still don't want to kind of go through that with you or at least support you, then, you know, at some point there's a lot of girls out there. There's a lot of guys out there and sometimes (laughs) you just have to say peace out, you know, (laughs) relationship advice here. I love it. Um, bet. (laughs) <laughs> all right man that's 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 solid i think one last thing on that is as far as the environment goes is just the food you have readily available like i've noticed so mm-hmm. much i just started working with steve a couple of weeks ago actually and we're going through a building phase right now and i've noticed so much like so across the course of college i gained 75 pounds in a shit ton of weight some of it was muscle a lot of it was not mm-hmm. but at the time it just like happened so easily but now I've noticed like going through the process of like losing 65 pounds, getting lean for me now, like trying to push my calories to like 3,100, 3,200 is literally hard just because of how mm-hmm. much different the food is. Like I literally feel like I've had to, I've talked to the clients about this as well, like undo habits. So like for me, one of the things I've done is like, okay, I have to actually start drinking liquid calories again so i can like i have to start drinking whole milk again so i can actually start so i think just little things like that like the food you have available makes such a difference whereas like if i go to my girlfriend's if i stay there she has like these peanut butter filled pretzel bites and like all this (laughs) stuff that i can just smash thousands of calories easily but i think that's another vastly underrated factor of this as well 
Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. I think that one of the best things that clients can do is when they're going through a fat loss phase or something like that, and they have certain kind of trigger foods or whatever it might be, making it as difficult as possible to have access to them. So sometimes it's like keeping them out of the house. Sometimes it's like out of sight, out of mind, putting them in the back of the pantry and stuff like that and making it hard to get to or even making vegetables and fruits like prepping those beforehand so they're really easy to get to and really convenient or stuff like that can absolutely help. 100%, 100%. And that's, I think that when you hear, you hear a lot of people talk about like a healthy relationship with food, right? And I think that mm-hmm. something I've talked to a lot of clients through is I think that people often think that like when they fully evolve, they like reach their final form, they'll have a super healthy relationship with food and they'll be able to just keep their house stocked with like ice cream and Doritos and like sleeves of Oreos and it will never be tempting. But I feel like the reality is for most people, like the people that are lean and seem to have a great relationship with food, like never get into like binge like behavior or anything like that. They just don't keep their food stocked with this. And I feel like it's like foods like that. I feel like for most people, like 99% of people are just really, really tempting. I feel like the people that manage it well simply like understand this like okay let's struggle with that i'm probably not going to keep it around most of the time Mm -hmm. yep i absolutely agree and you know on on one hand that that can make those foods when you do have those foods like if you never have them in the house and you kind of treat them as more of a special occasion then it can kind of make it even better when you do have one of those events or something like that to where you do have access to those foods and that can be beneficial and like you said a lot of people kind of develop those habits and tend to keep those foods just kind of out of the house and it can definitely help there for sure, man. Oh, so, all right, brother. So I want to shift gears with you here a little bit and actually talk about programming and nutrition for hypertrophy. So first thing I wanted to get into is just kind of picking your brain on how you go about designing a mesocycle for hypertrophy. Now, I know this is very much an intense <laughs> question, but... If you were going to put together just like a, what are your boxes you want to make sure you check when you're like going through program design for, again, like a hypertrophy mesocycle? Absolutely, man. So I'll try to not be super long-winded here. Please do. But there is kind of like three or four main factors that we can kind of manipulate to try to grow muscle. And the framework that I use is, you know, when we're trying to grow muscle, we want a certain amount of stress that stimulates hypertrophy, but we don't want so much stress to where we can't recover to it. Because if we can't recover to it, then we can't adapt. Like recovery is required for adaptation. So we want enough stress, but not so much, but it still has to be enough to cause an overloading stimulus. So there's kind of like four different factors that we can manipulate to make sure that we are having about the right amount of stress in our training. And one of the biggest ones for hypertrophy is volume. So when I'm talking about volume, I'm talking about how many challenging sets you're doing per muscle per week. And in general, I usually start clients around about eight to 12 sets for volume. And then depending on how they respond, I will manipulate that volume kind of up or down. But I'll talk about that in just a sec. Another factor is relative intensity. So this is how close you're training to failure. And for hypertrophy, 
we probably want to be within three or four reps from failure. So when I start a mesocycle, I usually start a little bit further from failure. And then as we progress towards the end of the mesocycle, it will be a little bit closer to failure. And that's just helping us kind of manage that training fatigue throughout a mesocycle. So in weeks one and two, it might be two to four reps in reserve or reps from failure. Right. And then in the final couple of weeks, it might be zero to two reps from failure, a little bit closer. So we have those two. And we also have intensity. So intensity is how much weight you have on the bar. And the easiest way to think about this is rep range. So what rep range are we working in? And for hypertrophy, it's probably a good idea for most of your stuff being in that eight to 15 range. Now, I still think it's a good idea to have some, a little portion of your training in that four to eight range, a little bit heavier, and then maybe even going in that 15 to 20, 30 range every once in a while. But I think that on average, that eight to 15 range is a very solid range to kind of be in. Okay. And then the final and fourth factor is frequency. So how often you train a muscle group. And it seems as though we want to be training a muscle at least about twice per week. And I think that a nice sweet spot is anywhere from two to four times per week for training a muscle group. So in total, I'm looking at when I start a client out for a mesocycle, I'm usually starting around eight to 12 sets per muscle per week, spread across two to four sessions per week within three to four reps from failure, getting closer to failure throughout a mesocycle. And then also in that eight to 15 rep range on average. So that's kind of where I start with things. Okay. Okay. So across the course of a mesocycle here, or for the listeners that don't know, basically we could say like a training phase, right? So for you, like how long would a typical mesocycle be? Yeah, man. It's, it's usually about four to six weeks. Okay. And a lot of people will ask, you know, well, how do you decide when it's four weeks? How do you decide when it's six weeks? And I think that the, the best way to do this is kind of working it back to, okay, so we start with eight to 12 sets, but then it's probably a good idea to adjust that based on how you're responding to make sure that we are kind of in that range to where our stress is enough to where we're growing muscle, but not so much to where we're not recovering from it. So how do we do that? Well, one of the biggest, or I would say the two biggest factors that are, that we can manipulate that adjust our training stress is volume or how many total sets we're doing and how close to failure we're training. So how hard each set is. And I think that the, the main trigger that I like to pull is kind of that volume. And when looking for that about right amount of stress, I'm kind of looking at a few different things. And This isn't super scientific. It's not backed by a crazy amount of research or anything like that. It's just getting us kind of in the ballpark of what's about right for somebody. And these things are soreness, how good of pumps somebody's getting, and how just subjectively difficult the session felt. Right. And what I'm kind of looking for on a per session basis is that they're getting pretty good pumps in the target muscle group that they might get a little bit of following day soreness or a little bit of fatigue. So like someone's delts might not get very sore, but they might notice that when they're putting groceries away or something like that, that their delts are a little fatigued the next day. Like we want some sort of sign of kind of homeostatic disruption that we overloaded that muscle to cause it to grow. And then 
subjective difficulty. So did the session itself actually feel at least somewhat challenging? And if they're getting a little bit of soreness, they're getting good pumps, it's feeling a little challenging, then I think that you are good to, your that, that volume level is pretty solid for you. But if you're noticing that you're getting a lot of soreness and the soreness is overlapping, so you train your chest on Monday and you're still sore going to train your chest on Thursday, well, we probably want to back off on that, at least that first session training volume a little bit. And then if it feels like super easy, then maybe we scale things up a little bit depending on what those other factors look like, the soreness and your pumps. And if it feels incredibly hard and you're getting super sore, well, then that's a pretty good indicator that we back off things a little bit. So throughout the mesocycle, I'm usually adding a set or two each week to kind of stay in that kind of optimal stimulus range. Because as we go throughout a mesocycle, we kind of get this repeated bout effect. So the stress. So if you did 10 sets in week one, that 10 sets in week two is probably going to influence you a little bit less or stress you a little bit less than it did in week one. So I like to add maybe one to three sets each week to kind of have that similar stress throughout the mesocycle. And then once we get to a point to where you're just, you might feel like you're getting a lot of kind of systemic fatigue. So you might notice things like your sleep's being disrupted again, or you're getting more irritable, or you're seeing decreases in your training performance kind of across the board, or your motivation to train is starting to go down. That might be a good sign that you are kind of around your systemic max, like your maximum recoverable volume to where it's probably not good to keep pushing volume up from here. So then when we get to that point, we usually follow that up with a deload. So depending on when someone gets to that point, will depend on whether their mesocycle is typically four, five, six weeks. So that was a very long answer to your question. No, dude, I love it. So it sounds like regardless, you pretty much have this intensity progression built in where you're moving closer and closer to failure, and then you manipulate volume depending on how they're adjusting, correct? Yep, absolutely. And I would say that this is this is something that I mainly do during a massing phase. So when right. someone has plenty of food coming in and we are really, we're pushing that volume, we're pushing that gaining phase and building muscle. During a cutting phase, my volumes are much more static. So there's this whole idea of your MRV, the most amount of volume that you can recover from and your minimum effective volume, your MEV. And we want to be within that range because if we are, then that's by definition effective for us. It's kind of that stress that's not too much, but not too little. And during a cutting phase, our MRV is likely a little bit lower because we don't have as much food coming in. Maybe we're a little bit more stressed, not, not eating as much, that sort of thing. So the stress that's not too much for us is a little bit lower. But on the flip side, the stress that's effective for us to kind of maintain that muscle, it might actually be higher in a cutting phase because we're not eating as much food. So we're just kind of generally a little bit less kind of anabolic. So we might have more catabolic processes or more conducive to tissue breakdown during a cutting phase. So that minimum effective volume might be a little bit higher. So this window between our maximum recoverable and our minimum effective is probably squeezed together a little bit. And if that's true, then our 
volume that's going to be most productive for us during a cutting phase is probably in a tighter range. So during a cutting phase, someone's volume level might go from 12 to 15 sets throughout a mesocycle. But through a gaining phase, it might go all the way from 10 to 20 sets, something like that. Okay. Okay. I love it. And then as far as exercise selection, do you have like a ratio of, I like to implement about this many compound movements versus isolation movements, or how do you go about deciding that? Yeah, man. So exercise selection, I'm pretty lenient with it. Now, I think that the the main consideration with exercise selection is kind of your stimulus to fatigue ratio. So that's just fancy talk for how much training stimulus do you get compared to how fatiguing an exercise is for you. So a couple of examples of this would be, so if someone's doing conventional deadlifts off the floor, that's, that's a pretty fatiguing exercise. And if our goal is to say, stimulate our, our hamstrings on that exercise, well, we're, we're definitely stimulating our hamstrings but we're getting a lot of fatigue for that stimulus. But if we did something like a, just a barbell RDL, so not off the floor, we might stimulate our hamstrings just as much, but we might not fatigue ourselves centrally as much, our entire body as much. So the barbell RDL might have a little bit better of a kind of stimulus to fatigue ratio there. So I like to pick exercises that tend to have really nice stimulus to fatigue ratios because if you are stimulating or you're fatiguing your entire body less, then you might be able to stimulate each muscle a little bit more and you might be able to edge out a little bit more progress because you don't hit that systemic kind of MRV as soon during a mesocycle. But in general, I tend to keep about the majority of exercises, the compound, dumbbell, multi-joint, basic exercises, and I like to see that like 50% or above. But if someone tells me that, hey, you know, this, this isolation move, it's the best stimulus to fatigue ratio exercise I've ever done. I hate this compound move. I'm definitely going to be flexible with that. But in general, that's kind of how I approach that. And I think that's very much, I know for me in the past, I get way too caught up in, okay, I have to just like, I have to barbell back squat, right? That's mm-hmm. the only way to grow my legs. And for me, that's just a movement that feels terrible. I would always like tweak my back, whereas, but I was like, I can't like press, I can't hack squat. Like, yeah, man. But for me, like making that switch to actually focusing more on like, okay, I'm going to push my leg press. I'm going to push my hack squat. I'm going to progress my Bulgarian split squat instead of like a back squat. That unlocked a lot of progress. Let me ask you this. How much are you considering resistance profiles when it comes to a movement? Because I know that I think that this is something that once you kind of understand resistance profiles, you can also almost overthink. Um, How much are you considering that with your exercise selection? Not a ton, to be honest. Like I, I think that if, if I'm adjusting someone's training, based on their how their kind of muscle is responding each session. So if they are getting good muscle pumps and that muscle is getting a little sore and that sort of thing, then I trust that the exercises they are doing is stimulating that muscle. So based off of that, I don't tend to pay attention to the the resistance curves and profiles a ton. Now, with that said, if somebody tells me that a, a specific muscle is a 
one of their biggest goals. Like if, if a girl comes to me and is like, Hey, I want some big glutes. I might pay attention a little bit more to those resistance curves. And I might, I might specifically have them train exercises to where the, the exercise is hardest when they're kind of in that peak hip extension. So that might be like a barbell hip thrust or some sort of like back extension machine or something like that. And then I might also program some abduction. So when they're turning their legs out and I might program something that is a vertical resistance. So that would be like a squat or a lunge. And I would kind of make sure to cover those bases. And I generally do make sure to you know, have vertical and horizontal pressing and pulling and have those different angles. Mm-hmm. But resistance profiles, I don't get too specific with it. And I think as long as pumps are good, soreness is good, everything else is in check, then that kind of works itself out. Right, right. And I think that's more something to really delve into if like, for example, like you said, like a girl that really wants to grow glue. So like if you have problem muscles, so to speak, you really have trouble mm-hmm. growing. Like I feel like for a lot of people, it's like, like the back's a great example of this. Like most, most back movements, the resistance curve isn't necessarily like the best match. Mm-hmm. But then also like you're saying, like you're saying, you know, or like we're talking about here, I feel like it's way too easy to overthink it. I'm like, okay, I need to only do T-bar movements or like a step back hammer strength throw in order to, so I feel like it's an easy thing to take too far as well. All right. Um, as far as one more thing on exercise. So across mesocycles, we could say like training phases, so to speak again, mm-hmm. for like these four to six week blocks, how often are you rotating exercises? Yep. So I keep things very simple. And basically all I like to do is one new exercise per muscle per mesocycle. So we'll do one four to six week block. And then the following mesocycle, I like to rotate in at least one fresh exercise and per muscle. So I think the benefits of that is keeps training enjoyable, have some variation in there. And plus we might work some different resistance curves, like you're talking about some different angles and that sort of thing. So that's kind of how I approach it. You know, some people like to swap exercises out a little bit more. I'm, I'm okay with that. Now, I do like to at least have some exercises that we keep in our rotation kind of on a regular basis so we can track progress with those a little bit easier, but I'm willing to be kind of flexible with that one. Okay. Okay. And I feel like as you get more into like intermediate and advanced too, it does become so much more important to be able to track your progress on movements across mm-hmm. multiple months. Whereas like if we're constantly changing up everything, I have the same thing. Like I have many intermediate clients that like a lot of variation. So that's where it's like, okay, with like our isolation work. So maybe we like give you a different like delt finisher or like bicep yeah. finisher or something like that. That's super fun where it doesn't take a lot of skill. But if we're constantly switching, like, okay, last phase you did a back squat. Now you're hitting a front squat. Now we're doing like, it's so hard to actually know if you're right. ever progressing. Yep. In, in that situation, it's very easy to kind of always fool yourself into thinking that you're making progress because what you're actually doing is just getting better at the movement each muscle right. cycle and you're re rebuilding those movement patterns and that sort of thing. So I I definitely like to have kind of those those staple exercises to where whether it's a back squat or a bench press or something that we definitely keep coming back to on a regular basis to make sure that we can see that things are trending in the right direction over time. Right, right. And if you're constantly 
if you are constantly switching exercises, like you said, you'll see like a big strength increase from week one to week two, or like you're a lot stronger on the movement, I should say. But like you're saying, it's so much just like your brain, your body are better learning the skills. So you're getting more efficient at it. Not that mm-hmm. like, oh shit, I built two pounds of muscle <laughs> this week. And that's what I'm so, um, I love it, man. All right, brother. So as far as programming for hypertrophy goes, like across the building phase, is anything else you want to add to that before we move on to nutrition? I would say, so like I said, we have the, the volume, the frequency, intensity, relative intensity. Like if you've got those generally in the right spot and each week you're kind of adjusting things a little bit to make sure that your training stress is not too much, but not too little, it's kind of in that about right phase, then I think someone's doing just fine. Now, one thing that I still like to implement is certain kind of metabolite techniques and stuff like that. So that would be things that basically just give you a pretty awesome pump. And, you know, there's back and forth on how important is kind of metabolic stress for hypertrophy. Does this even matter? I don't know, man. Like it's just fun. It's fun to do. It keeps things interesting. Clients usually like it or they hate it if it's like a metabolite technique for the legs or something, but usually (laughs) it keeps things interesting. And, you know, there could be benefits of that cellular swelling that could help with anabolic signaling and stuff like that. So I think it just makes sense to hedge your bets. And I don't see a lot of a lot of risk in doing it as long as it's not like a metabolite technique for every single exercise. I think might as well do that. And the way I approach it is usually I rotate them like throughout my mesocycle. So in mesocycle one, I might do a metabolite technique for back and biceps. So this could be things like drop sets, supersets, stuff like that. Mesocycle two, it might be for chest and triceps. Mesocycle three, it might be for delts and quads. And I'll just kind of recycle back through that because after a while of doing these metabolite techniques, usually people notice that it kind of feels like it's just not doing anything anymore. They're just kind of moving weight around when they're tired. And I feel like if you always stick with a certain muscle doing these, then it kind of loses its effectiveness. So that's why I kind of like to rotate through them. Okay. Okay. And I think even past like the potential mechanisms of hypertrophy, if we're just talking about some shit you really enjoy doing and is going to make you go harder with your training program and stick to Mm -hmm. it better. I feel like metabolite techniques really really help with that so like that in itself i think justifies it yep i i absolutely agree as long as it's not like impeding your recovery to a degree to where you're now doing too much stress then i i think there's a lot of benefits to it regardless of whether it's that much better for hypertrophy or not Okay. Okay. And one last thing I wanted to ask on programming. I talked with Steve about this a little bit when he was on the podcast, but where would you implement like a low volume phase here? Yeah. So the, the primer phase as, as we would call it. So I, I tend to like to use these the most, usually after kind of an extended fat loss phase and the, my rationale behind that and mine's a little bit So I tend to program these just a little bit different than what like Steve and Pascal might do, but I really like it in this kind of slot because after someone's been dieting for 10 to 15 weeks, a lot of the times they're just kind of drained a little bit. Their motivation might be down a little bit. They might just want to 
kind of drop that fatigue. And I think that running a lower volume kind of maintenance phase to where, okay, let's just maintain your body weight, get you feeling a little bit better and get you back in a position to where you're just kind of feeling good. You're more satiated. Maybe we recover your hormones a little bit in that kind of maintenance phase. And then once we finish that maintenance phase, then we can start with with a gaining. So I really like it after kind of more of an extended cut. And then also I'll have clients that gain for like 12 months at a time. So I tend to prefer longer, slow and steady gaining phases. Okay. I, I know Steve's a little bit more aggressive with them and I'm, I'm a little bit more conservative with them. And I think both work fine. I think it all ends up being about the same in the long run, but I tend to prefer the longer ones. And what we might do after like four or five mesocycles of hypertrophy training, someone might come to me and tell me that, hey, you know, after this deload, I'm, I'm not feeling quite fully recovered. And, you know, I'm, I'm feeling that I'm having to do more and more volume and not getting as good pumps. I'm seeing my strength and not progress very much anymore. I'm more fatigued earlier on in my mesocycles. If they're kind of reporting that, then I'm like, hey, you know, we've done four or five hypertrophy muscle cycles here, it's probably time to take that foot off the gas a little bit, run a little bit of a maintenance phase here, or it could even be running back-to-back deloads to where we just basically run two deload weeks, kind of an active rest phase, bring that fatigue down so we can continue the gaining phase. So my main slots are after an extended fat loss phase and after like four or five muscle cycles of hypertrophy, if they're reporting those things, then I'll pull the trigger on one of those. Okay. Okay. Perfect. Do you have time to get into nutrition, man, or you need to run here pretty quick? Um, I've got about 15 minutes here, so okay. you know, I could, I could cover it quick. Okay. Let's bust out then real quick. So as far as nutrition goes, do you have a rate of gain you, that you like to see? Yeah, man. So like I said, I tend to be a little bit more conservative with things and I'm especially more conservative with individuals that have more of a history of being kind of maybe a little bit overweight and that sort of thing, because I think that they have a little bit more of an aversion to gaining that, that fat. And with, when someone's always been naturally lean, I feel like they're much more kind of accepting to going through those gaining phases. And often they have to push the calories a lot harder than someone that previously was overweight. And I think that's partially due because if they were always kind of naturally lean, they might upregulate their activity in response to eating more food a little bit more than someone that might not have been naturally lean. So I push things a little bit more with them, but in general, I like to see about 1% of someone's body weight per month. So if someone's about 200 pounds, right around two pounds per month. And if they're anywhere between half of a percent to 1%, I'm probably cool with that. And I'm going to keep that kind of going in that range. So that's what I shoot for, for rates of gain. Okay. Okay. And those are the typical guidelines I give too. I think the one thing, one mistake I've made in the past, and I very similar to what you're talking about. And I think we probably both have this fear because we both like had to go through like being a little chunkier for a time. Oh yeah. But I know for me, like after I first got lean, one of the biggest mistakes I made was like trying to tiptoe that line too close to where, okay, I'm actually was probably dipping back into a deficit a lot of time. And I, my training for like six months just was very unproductive. Yep, absolutely. It's kind of going all the way back to that body fat settling point discussion. I, I will be conservative with it 
once I'm sure that we are in kind of their body fat settling range and we're in a healthy range, like if like we that. get really lean and they, they're still reporting signs of, okay, my sleep sucks, I'm irritable, I'm food focused, I'm noticing all these symptoms, then I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive with those rates again and be more assertive with getting us in kind of a healthier range sooner. Right. And I absolutely agree. Like you don't want to go so conservative to where you look back in six months and you haven't gained a pound because at that point it's like, where do you expect the muscle to come from if you don't right. gain any weight here, you know? Right. So you don't want to be so conservative to where you never increase your calories, but finding that middle ground, I think is a nice approach for people. Okay. That's very similar to the approach I take, man. Like if biofeedback is very good, we see training performance good. We're still seeing improvements in the gym. Then it's probably okay. If like, okay, this week you didn't gain exactly whatever half Mm -hmm. a pound or like 0.4 pounds. But yeah, no, I think we were very much in agreement there. Um, macro split, just like a typical, you got a preference there. Yeah. So, you know, eat enough protein and you're probably good. I'm, I'm not too strict on this one. I, I think that for protein, if we're eating above about, you know, 0.8 grams per pound, we're probably totally fine, especially during a gaining phase. So generally I set things around a gram per pound. and I'm like, Hey, if you're plus or minus like 10 to 15 grams here, we're probably totally fine. And for fat intake, I like to see kind of a minimum of about 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound, just to make sure we're eating enough of that. But everything else can kind of be up to them a little bit. Now, I, I would still want to hit, you know, at least maybe a gram per pound of carbs, especially if they have room in their calories for that and make sure we're kind of eating enough carbs. Right. But other than that, you know, there, there could be benefits to kind of the I'm not sure if you've heard Steve talk about it, but the high carb, low fat massing and stuff like that. Like, uh, I think it, there could be something to it, but usually for, unless someone comes to me and they're like, man, I'm willing to do everything I can to get 110% of my results. Then I might play with some little strategies to see how they respond. But for the most part, we're hitting a minimum fat of 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound. We're hitting around a ground, a gram per pound of protein. And then we're kind of letting them, them hit a calorie range from there. Okay. And again, man, I feel like I've said this a hundred times on the podcast, but that's pretty <laughs> much how I set it up too. I figured we have pretty similar philosophies on this, but like yeah. around one gram of protein, at least 0.3 grams per pound of body weight of fat. Past that point, I have, I typically push for like the higher carb approaches. Cause like, again, it's the most optimal thing, but also mm-hmm. I've ran into with many clients where it's like, they just can't stick to that. Like they're eating more, they want to eat fattier foods. And at that point, it's like typically like, okay, well, it's fine. Let's just bump fats up. Like the most important thing here is we're controlling overall calories. You're eating enough carbs and enough protein. Mm -hmm. Um, I love it, man. Before I let you go here, anything else you want to add to the nutrition aspect of that? So I tend to get a question around nutrient timing quite a bit. So I guess that's the other aspect of this. And, you know, first principle is, okay, total calories, eating enough protein, eating enough fat, eating a decent amount of carbs, and you're probably good for the most part. But I still like to see someone spreading their protein a little bit throughout the day. So most people I recommend about at least four meals throughout the day. But if someone's like, I'm only going to eat three, then I'm not going to push them too hard, especially if they're just kind of like a recreational lifter, want to build some muscle. Like 
you're probably fine for the right. most part. Like there could be a little bit benefit, but we're, we're going to see diminishing returns from three versus four and then from four versus five. So I tend to like to see protein about four meals per day spread across the day. Carbs and fats, like maybe a little bit more carbs around your workout. It might help you feel a little bit better. So maybe slot 50 plus percent around your pre post intra workout. And then other from that, you can kind of spread things however you may. Perfect. Perfect. I love it, man. All right, dude. My last question for you, who has the superior cows and corn, Nebraska or Iowa? It's not even close, man. Iowa <laughs> kicks Nebraska's ass all up and down the cornfields. Get real, man. All right. On that note, again, dude, I appreciate you coming on here and I want to be respectful of your time. So just let everybody know where they can find you, anything you want to plug. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. So revivestronger.com, Team Revive Stronger on Instagram. I'm Ryan J. Solomon on Instagram. We also have a podcast, Revive Stronger Podcast, and that's probably about it. Perfect. I'll link all that up in the show notes. And again, dude, thank you for being here. Cool, man. Thanks for having me.